0: Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, the confession of our church, and a summary of the Christian faith, and we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 31, that's on page 546 of your books of praise. There the question is, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline. By these two the kingdom of heaven is opened to unbelievers and closed to un- excuse me open to believers and closed to unbelievers How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent." According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians, but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life, are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, They are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, our goal for this afternoon is to study this phrase, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to understand what the Lord Jesus meant by this term. Now, this is actually a very important topic for our day. It's connected with the doctrine of the church. We spent some weeks, uh, this was some time ago, but we spent some weeks studying the doctrine of the church. Well, maybe I'll start then by asking you, did you know? that the key or excuse me that the kingdom of heaven has keys i would hazard a guess that probably not too many christians actually know that the kingdom of heaven has keys now no no we don't we don't mean literal physical keys uh, nor for that matter while we're on this topic do we suppose that the kingdom of heaven has literal pearly gates as the comics and uh, the uh, jokes apparently portray so we can get that notion out of the way. But Scripture does speak of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our goal for this, understand, for this afternoon, to understand what is meant by this phrase and why it matters also for the church today. Now, the phrase comes from the Lord Jesus himself. We read it in Matthew 16. It's the only place in Scripture where you find this, this phrase, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, but it's certainly not the only place where you find this concept. So then what is what is this key? Or what are these keys? Well, let's hear it again from, from Matthew 16. Uh, the text records how Peter made this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to Peter, uh, this is verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona." For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, for us then to be able to understand what is this key or what are these keys we should probably begin by thinking about the question, what is this kingdom of heaven to which Jesus is giving keys? Now The kingdom of heaven is often also called the kingdom of God. Matthew, The Gospel of Matthew generally prefers the phrase kingdom of heaven. Other gospels say kingdom of God. But the phrases are used interchangeably, so we should understand them as referring to the same thing. So what is this kingdom of God? Is it a place? Can, can you travel to the kingdom of God? Does it have borders? Those are some of the questions that we would want to think about. Well, when we speak of a kingdom, well, what do we normally mean by that? We, we refer to a, a place, a territory, or a realm over which a king rules. A dominion over which a king exercises his rule. Well, if we work with that simple definition, then uh, when we're speaking about the kingdom of God, then we can say the kingdom of God is wherever God rules. Wherever God rules. Now, a couple of qualifications on, on that, if we're going to understand what Scripture means by this phrase. Number one, when we're talking about God ruling, uh, we're not just talking about God being in control. God certainly is in control. He is God. So he is ruling in that sense over all things. Uh, But if if that's what was meant by the kingdom of God, then, then it would simply be the whole of the universe, heaven and earth, where God is in control. Uh, But that's not what the kingdom of God refers to. When we talk about the place over which God rules, we're talking about wherever human hearts and human lives are brought under the rule of God, where they are brought into obedience to that rule of God. In other words, the kingdom of God is everywhere where God is honored and obeyed as king. That's one qualification We want to offer. And the second one is we should not think that the kingdom of God or or the kingdom of heaven refers only to the place or sphere of heaven itself. Uh, It is true, that is the only place where God is obeyed and honored perfectly. And yet, the kingdom of God in Scripture clearly takes place here on on earth. It it is something that, that the Old Testament prophets looked forward to to come to this earth. Uh, And we want to recognize then the the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is not something that is spoken of for the first time in the New Testament. It is, in fact, something the Old Testament prophets looked forward to and awaited. Uh, One of the places where we see this idea coming up is all the way back in Genesis chapter 11 uh, in the story of Babel. Uh, There in the the story of Babel, you see a clear contrast between the kingdom of men, which is the kingdom of Satan, and, and also sometimes called the kingdom of darkness, and on the other side, the kingdom of God. God commanded them to scatter, to not stay in one place. And men in their rebellion said, No, we shall build a city and stay in one place and build a tower high up to heaven uh, to, to therefore oppose God. Uh, and, and so God uh, then, then came down and uh, stopped that project and forcibly scattered the human race. But the story doesn't end there with God putting an end to Babel. Uh, The story continues in the next chapter in Genesis 12 when God then uh, initiates the building of his kingdom. He calls Abram out of Ur and makes promises to him that I will make a great nation or kingdom of you and bless all of the families of the earth through you. Well, there you you start to see the kingdom of God. Uh, God is setting up His kingdom, which is a place of righteousness and justice and obedience to the will of God. A place of peace over against the chaos and violence of this world. Uh, And that theme then of the kingdom of God continues to build up throughout the Old Testament. Uh, one of the pinnacle moments of the kingdom of God was when God uh, ordained or God anointed uh, David as king over his kingdom. and Finally, a man after God's own heart to rule over God's kingdom. Uh, there, God also made promises to David that his throne would be an eternal throne, that one of his sons would always sit on, on his throne. And we, we get this sense there of God establishing this, this permanent kingdom. Uh, But of course, if we know anything at all about the kings of Israel and Judah, uh, we know that they ultimately failed Uh, in themselves. Even David could not bring about the true, meaningful, lasting kingdom of God in any real sense. Uh, Even though he ruled over God's people and did so in God's name and under God's authority, yet he and all the kings to follow him failed to rule with God's righteousness and God's justice to bring about the obedience of God's people. Uh, Even the best of them, David himself or uh, Josiah or Hezekiah could not bring God's rule into the hearts and lives of God's people. What we find is even the good kings reigned over an evil nation. And the big lesson then that comes from the book of Kings uh, is is that the kingdom of God is not going to come by human strength and human power. That unless God pours out His Spirit, there will be no kingdom of God. Well, It's at that time that the prophets really then began to speak of the the coming and establishing of God's kingdom, uh, recognizing that what they were seeing under the kings of David and the line of David was not Uh, what God had ultimately intended for his kingdom to be. Uh, And so they began looking forward to the Messiah, the great son of David, and a permanent, lasting kingdom. Well, if you understand then this this larger story, this coming of the kingdom, then you can begin to understand what, what the Lord Jesus meant when he came, as the Gospels say, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Uh, the idea is, now is the time. Now the Messiah has come. Now the nations are going to be gathered in, and now also the judgment of God is going to be exercised. Some are going to be brought to obedience and repentance. You see that already under under the uh, teaching of John the Baptist. And some are going to be cut off, who do not belong to the kingdom. Uh, they shall be removed. Uh, So Matthew 4 uh, introduces the Lord Jesus' ministry with these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, The big idea is the king has now come, and something big is about to happen in human history, and you are either going to be part of it by God's grace, or excluded from it under God's judgment. Jesus often spoke of how unbelieving Israel was going to be excluded from the kingdom. Matthew 8, just to give an example, Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this then is very important for us to understand what is meant when, when the Lord Jesus spoke of the keys of the kingdom. Uh, the concept, the, the phrase may be new, but the concept is not. It is being either excluded, uh, included, or excluded from God's people, from God's kingdom. In this way, the, the term of kingdom is not that far removed from the concept of covenant, God's, God's covenant with his people. In uh, the kingdom of God, it contains both rights, uh, privileges, honors that belong to its citizens, uh, such as eternal life, such as a share in the promises made to Abraham, uh, the forgiveness of sins, the protection and the provision of God, uh, the honor that God bestows on, on His people, of you are a people called by my name. Uh, these are the rights that belong to the citizens of the kingdom. Uh, And it also comes, like any citizenship, with responsibilities, uh, including being brought under the rule and the reign of the king, obedience to the king, having a heart that is brought into conformity with the king's rule and the king's justice. So that's what's meant then by belonging to the kingdom, and that then is also what is lost by being excluded from the kingdom. As I mentioned, it, 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 the parallel to the covenant is not that far removed. It is, uh, in, in many ways, the same concept. Now, something we want to recognize about the kingdom of God is that it, is, it both has come and is coming. It is an already and not yet. Uh, it has come with the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the king, sits on the king's throne. The kingdom of God is here. Uh, and the king has poured out his spirit, bringing people under obedience into, uh, the, the, into conformity with the will of the king. Uh, so in that sense, the kingdom of God is here. It is here among us already, uh, wherever Christ rules by his word and spirit, and our hearts and lives are, are changed. Uh, but the kingdom of God is also still coming. Uh, so it is already and, and not yet. Uh, although it is truly here among us, uh, insofar as our hearts are changed by the word and our lives are uh, being brought under the rule of God, uh, yet our lives, as we know, have, have yet a long ways to go. Uh, there are parts of our hearts that are not yet brought under the rule of God. Uh, there is work that must yet be done. Uh, Furthermore, when we look out at this world, we recognize the kingdom of God is still coming. The nations are still uh, being gathered in. Uh, And finally, the fullness of the kingdom is not yet here either. Uh, The fullness of the kingdom, when God will reign, when Christ will reign here on earth again, and we, as Jesus said, would sit at the table together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, enjoying perfect eternal life uh, on a renewed earth. Uh, That is not yet here. So it is already, but not yet But this then helps us to understand what the Lord Jesus meant by speaking of the keys of the kingdom and this idea of being either brought into or excluded from this kingdom. Now, this is really important because many people will read these words uh, of uh, uh, these... these, these words of the Lord Jesus being brought into or excluded from, uh, and because they assume that the kingdom of heaven is only something in the future, referring only to the sphere of heaven itself, uh, and not something already here on earth that Jesus has said has come, uh, many will conclude that, that therefore, because it's future, God alone knows who belongs to the kingdom, and no one on earth gets to make any judgment about whether, whether one belongs to the kingdom or not. But that is not what the Lord Jesus teaches. Uh, rather, he teaches the kingdom is here. It is visible, uh, and the church is positioned at the center of the kingdom and entrusted with the authority uh, on earth to make judgments concerning who belongs and who does not belong to the kingdom of God. So listen again to what the Lord Jesus says in this text. Uh, First of all, he says in response to Peter's confession, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So we see the church as as central to the kingdom. Uh, He says, and the gates of Hades, that is the kingdom of Satan, will not overcome this church. Uh, And then he says immediately after that, and I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What Jesus is doing is he is entrusting to Peter and the church the authority to determine who belongs and who does not belong in that kingdom of God. Uh, the way to entry into the kingdom is through the church. And the church must guard those gates. And now a quick footnote here. um, Roman Catholics argue that uh, these keys were entrusted only to Peter himself and not to the rest of the disciples. And they further argue uh, that that Peter then went on to become the bishop of Rome. And so Rome became established as the head of all of of the churches and having authority over all the church, which is then continued through the succession of the Roman popes and so on. And so forth. Well, there's a number of, of big assumptions that are, are being made there. Uh, this, the assumption that Peter even became the bishop of Rome being one of those uh, assumptions. And the assumption that authority is only given to one uh, of the disciples being another uh, but either way, it is very clear that the Lord Jesus is not entrusting these keys only to Peter, but to the church. He mentions the church there in Matthew 16 in that, in that same text. Uh, and, that, and it's clear these keys are given to the local church wherever the church may be gathered. And the reason we know that is because Jesus uses the same phrase, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He uses this exact phrase again in chapter 18 of of Matthew, uh, which we also read, where Jesus is there, clearly speaking of church discipline. Discipline that is done by the local church. Uh, there he says again, uh, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, and, and then he concludes and he says, For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That authority is not given to one man, it is given to the local church wherever the church is gathered. So, what this does mean then is that the church is entrusted with the very weighty authority of declaring who belongs to the kingdom and who does not. And that is something we should take very, very seriously. Uh, the church exercises that authority in, in two primary ways. That's the way the catechism uh, breaks it down, uh, where, where they make a distinction between two different keys, the preaching of the gospel and, and church discipline. And let's take a look at, at each of those. Uh, In the first place, then the church exercises this authority given by Christ uh, to herald the kingdom by faithfully proclaiming the gospel to the world. When the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, the distinctions between who is in and who is out already become very clear and are done with the authority of Christ. Uh, So the gospel message, uh, of course, is that Jesus is the Son of God who came for for the sins of this world, to die for the sins of this world. Uh, And that gospel comes, that message comes with a call to repent and believe, uh, to turn from sin and to turn to God through Christ. When that message is faithfully proclaimed, then sin will also be faithfully denounced. And all who who live in sin will be called to repentance. The preaching of the gospel must always call out sin. The kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of Satan, and it will confront head-on the kingdom of Satan. Uh, so if, if the preaching of, of, of the kingdom is not calling out sin, uh, then it's not faithful preaching. And you see this throughout the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Acts, we find Paul and the apostles calling out the sin of their fellow Jews, uh, calling them to repentance. Uh, you think as well of Peter and Stephen preaching to the Jews, calling them to repentance for having forsaken uh, and, and even rejected the Messiah. Uh, and, and it comes to the Gentiles as well. You think of Paul in, in places like Acts 17 in Athens, calling out to the Greeks there uh, to, to repent, uh, teaching them the true God does not dwell in temples made by hands, does not inhabit idols, uh, and in fact detests this idolatry. Uh, and so he calls the world to repentance. Uh, so true preaching must call uh, for repentance. Turn from sin Turn to Christ. Now, those that do, those that do turn from their sin uh, and seek forgiveness in Christ are then welcomed into the church by means of baptism. Uh, Baptism isn't mentioned here in in this uh, Lord's Day, uh, but perhaps it it ought to be since it functions as as the gateway to the church. Uh, The preaching of the gospel is repent and believe, and those who do repent are then called to be baptized and brought into the church. You see this in Acts 2, uh, the Jews say, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, and you uh, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And then even after we're brought into the church, the preaching of the gospel continues to carry this function of declaring authoritatively who is in and who is out. It is not merely something for outsiders, something that is proclaimed to the world, uh, but also proclaimed to those within the kingdom. Uh, The preaching continues to call us to Christ, uh, to call us to daily repentance, and also to warn us uh, against hypocrisy and unbelief. We might think, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, which is basically a long sermon uh, written to believers carrying warnings against apostasy and unbelief. Uh, So then the office bearers of the church uh, exercise this authority given to them uh, here in Matthew 16 by faithfully preaching, by faithfully proclaiming the gospel and calling sinners to repentance. Uh, but, But preaching is not the only way that the Lord Jesus uh, entrusted this authority to the church. The church also exercises it through church discipline. Uh, in fact, this is probably specifically what the Lord Jesus is referring to in, in Matthew 16 and 18. The catechism is not wrong in identifying the role of preaching as, as having this function, uh, but the Lord Jesus here in Matthew 16 is clearly referring specifically to uh, the practice of church discipline, and this is something that we should take very seriously. Uh, In our day, uh, in part, uh, perhaps because of the abundance of different churches and denominations and federations, uh, and and perhaps also in part because people believe that the kingdom of God is something future and and only far away, uh, what is often assumed, uh, many conclude that no one has the authority to judge. Uh, not even the church. And the phrase is often uh, thrown out, judge not lest you be judged, uh, taken out of context from from Matthew chapter um, 7. But no, though it is true that Jesus teaches we are not to have a judgmental attitude. In the way we judge, we shall be judged. uh, But that is not an absolute prohibition of making judgments. When Jesus entrusted to the church this key of church discipline, there is a calling there, a duty to make judgments. And that's exactly what we see the apostles doing in the early church, making judgments about who is in and who is out. So the apostle Paul, in the text that we read from 1 Corinthians 5, says we must judge those who, within our midst. We don't judge the world uh, except through the the public preaching of the gospel, but we do individually judge those within our midst. Uh, uh, That is something we are commanded to do. Uh, And so this is something then that we should take very seriously. When the Lord Jesus entrusted the church with the keys of the kingdom, uh, he entrusted them with a very serious and weighty responsibility uh, to declare who belongs to Christ and who does not. Uh, And with that, he gives a very sobering promise. Whatever you judge on earth, uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And consider what that means. Christ is saying, in effect, that he will honor what the church on earth decides. Provided, yes, of course, that the church is, is obedient to, to the word of God, the church is being faithful. It doesn't mean that uh, the church can now act unjustly and God will still honor that anyways. Uh, we, we think, for example, the way the Roman Catholic Church uh, excommunicated the reformers for preaching the gospel. God, God does not honor that kind of judgment. Uh, however, If the church is being faithful to the Word of God and calling a sinner to forsake that which is truly sin, uh, that the sinner is refusing to forsake, uh, then the church is ultimately obliged to use this last and ultimate remedy. And Christ's assurance is that the decision of the church will be honored in heaven. That decision will stand. And unless the sinner is restored to the church here on earth, then the sinner shall surely be cut off from Christ and perish eternally. Now, that's a very serious responsibility. In much of contemporary Christian culture, we're so accustomed to, to thinking little of the church and even less of the authority of the church that, that many Christians regard with almost no esteem at all uh, the the judgment of the church. But that's a very serious error. At the end of the day, none of us will get to judge ourselves. We will be judged by Christ, and Christ assures us that he will judge, uh, in large part at least, on the basis of the decision of the local church. A great weight will be placed on that decision, even though, even though, The church is full of sinners. Uh, The church has made many mistakes. Uh, We are all human, even the office bearers of the church. Even so, Christ tells us, you do not get to be judges of yourselves. I have entrusted judgment to the church. And if you refuse to listen to the church and refuse to forsake your sin, do not expect to find any mercy in heaven. It's a very serious warning. It happens too often and too easily that Christians who are disciplined in one church simply pick up and leave and go to another church and think that therefore they are safe. Now, the church does have responsibility to ensure that this doesn't happen. Uh, if a brother should show up in our church uh, and say that he is from some other church and now wants to be a member here, uh, we, have, we have a responsibility to do due diligence to ensure uh, that that person was a member in good standing, that they were not under discipline in that church. Uh, but even if it should fail, that the church should not do its due diligence, or even worse, if the receiving church should, should shrug its shoulders and say, Who cares what happened in, in the last church? Uh, it will do the sinner. Either way, it will do the sinner no good. As long as that church that made that judgment is being faithful to Christ, the judgment shall stand. It happens as well uh, sometimes that those who are under discipline in a church may choose to withdraw from the church before the, decision, uh, before the, the discipline reaches its final conclusion. Uh, but this too, make, it does the sinner no good. Uh, the church has made its judgment by declaring the sinner to be in sin, and Christ is going to honor that judgment. If the sinner chooses to run from that judgment, they they only condemn themselves. They render the the judgment final and the verdict final by their refusal to be held accountable to Christ's church. So this is something we should take very seriously. Even if many Christians today do not think much of the authority of the local church, Christ teaches us to, to think much of it. Christ holds it in very high honor. Uh, And he tells us ahead of time, he warns us now, uh, this is the standard by which I will judge, by the decision of the church. Well, this is also what Paul commands in the text that we read from 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He commands the church uh, not only to judge those in, who are in their midst, uh, but also to render a verdict. Uh, and in the case of, uh, of this man who's living in sin, uh, he commands the church, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Uh, now, when Paul says this, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, uh, he's not referring to, to uh, some sort of execution that, that the church should literally kill uh, the person. He's not referring to the physical uh, flesh. The, the church has sometimes done that in its history, uh, taking upon itself the, 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 the right wrongly to do this, taking upon themselves the right to carry out uh, f- uh, a capital punishment. Uh, but that's not what Paul is talking about for, for many hundreds of years. The church did not even have uh, the ability to do such a thing. That's not what Paul is, is teaching. Uh, rather, when he refers to the destruction of, of the flesh, uh, he's referring here to that, the sinful nature, the, the, the flesh that remains within us. Uh, and what he's saying is, give that man over to his sin. If he's insistent on living in this sin, then give the man over to that sin so that he may face the consequences of his choices uh, without, holding, without anyone in the church holding him back any longer. And then perhaps he may be broken by the consequences of his sin and come to repentance and ultimately be saved. In the church, we are, we are called to do everything possible to exhort one another, to help uh, one another, to spur each other on to righteousness, to admonish each other as soon as, as possible. Uh, the elders are, are called in particular to do everything possible to warn those who are straying, to save them from, from their sin. But when all else fails, when the sinner is obstinate and persistent in his sin, uh, to hand someone over to Satan... For the destruction of the flesh means that the sinner is removed from the church and removed from the grace of God and left to their sin. So they may experience life as they want it, as their sin wants it. And then perhaps as that breaks and falls, uh, then perhaps uh, by the grace of God they may be broken and brought to repentance. Uh, so the, the church is commanded to, to close and and lock as it were, the gates of the kingdom to those members who refuse to forsake their sin. But that does not mean that the door cannot be reopened. Uh, Christ also gives his disciples the authority to loose on earth uh, and, and the promise that what you loose on earth will also be loosed in heaven. Uh, and here too, uh, he, uh, he, he gives his assurance that the, the final verdict will be based here on the verdict of the church. And we see an example of that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It may be that this, this text is referring to the same individual as, as in 1 Corinthians 5, or it may be referring to, to someone else. Uh, but in any case, Paul refers to a sinner who was evidently broken by the process of discipline, uh, having been removed from the church and then having turned back to the Lord in sorrow. And so in this case, Paul commands the church to turn and forgive and comfort the one who was uh, disciplined so that he may not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow. So he says, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. And so we need to recognize then that the purpose of discipline, it is not only to purify the church. That is certainly one Purpose. But it's not only uh, to purify the church, uh, nor only to protect the honor of God's name, though it is that too, but it is also to save the soul of the one who has sinned, uh, to, to, by the grace of God, bring that sinner back to repentance. Repentance. By being removed from, from the kingdom of God, by being left to his sin, the hope is the sinner will discover how empty, how terrifying, how miserable life is outside of Christ, and so be broken that he may ultimately be healed by Christ. And so Christ promises us, whatever you loose on earth shall also be loosed in heaven. There is hope for restoration for all who repent. But once again, that hope is to be found in the local church. The sinner does not get to just get right with God all by themselves and assume that therefore all shall be right in heaven. No, Christ gives that authority to the church. The sinner must confess his sin to the church and both promise and show true repentance. The church needs to see that that repentance is sincere. And so, brothers and sisters, let us take seriously uh, the words of Christ and the words of the apostle that we have read. Uh, Let us, as as Peter says in in 1 Peter 5, we're going to get there soon in in our series in Peter, uh, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Uh, The central issue in any sin, uh, whether it's uh, uh, whatever sin it may be, the central issue is always pride. Uh, there's lots of sins uh, that can get a sinner stuck in the mud, uh, but it is pride that will cause them to drown in it and not be saved. Uh, and so let us make every effort to humble ourselves before, uh, under the, the mighty hand of God and also then before one another and receive with thanksgiving, the leadership of the church was given to shepherd our souls and and care for us that we might be saved. Amen.